what up? We are Really Melanated, your two favorite horror aunties talking about movies one of us is obsessed with, but we both enjoyed. I'm Ashley, always with the Canadian homie, Carolyn. What's up? Hey there, how's it going? Today we are discussing Jennifer Reeder's feature film, Knives and Skin, released in 2019 from IFC Midnight and New City Chicago Film Project. So I'm going to use the synopsis from the press notes because I think it's it's pretty cool and it's a little... It's different. It's interesting. Um, and it's like, it's not like the norm, very much like the film is not, it strays kind of from the norm of the regular synopsis, synopses we kind of see around. Knives and Skin follows the investigation of a young girl's disappearance in a stylized version of a rural Midwest town that hovers just above reality. Unusual coping techniques develop among the traumatized small town residents with each new secret re- revealed. The ripple of fear and suspicion destroys some relationships and strengthens others. The backdrop of trauma colors quintessential rituals, classrooms, dances, courtship, football games in which the teenagers experience an accelerated loss of innocence while their parents are forced to confront adulthood failures. This mystical teen noir presents coming of age as a lifelong process and examines the profound impact of grief. This film stars Tim Hopper as Dan Kitzmiller, Audrey Francis as Lynn Kitzmiller, Kate Arrington as Renee Darlington, James Vincent Meredith as Doug Darlington, Marilyn Dodds Frank as Grandma Miriam Kitzmiller, Tony Fitzpatrick as Principal Markham, Marika Engelhart as Lisa Harper, Alex Moss as Aaron Westridge, he was a substitute teacher, Raven Whitley as Carolyn Harper, Ty Alwyn as Andy Kitzmiller, Robert Cunningham as Jesse Darlington, Jalen Gilbert as Jason Kendrick, Grace Smith as Joanna Kitzmiller, Arianne Roach as Charlotte Kurdich, Haley Bothalon as Afra Sadiq, Kayla Carter as Laurel Darlington, Emma Lahi as Colleen, and Aurora Real de Asua as April Martinez. So Carolyn, tell me about your initial gut reactions with Knives and Skin. Well, because I had heard you talking about it for so long, you're just like, as soon as you can see this film, see this film. And I'm like, okay, what is this hype? And uh, I watched it, and uh, the first thing that hit me was arrangements of the 80 songs. That was the first, because I, you know, I'm thinking, wait, that sounds, sounds so familiar. And then I realized it's like these brilliant new wave hits from when I was growing up. And that just hit me in the gut. And I was like, oh my God, and that angst. So, and I also thought it was, um, I didn't even know what to make of it the first time I watched it. And I thought, oh, well, and and we'll talk about this later, but I immediately thought Twin Peaks because, and I've seen that a lot, like thrown around a lot in articles and reviews and that sort of thing. But it's so much more than that. I think I really enjoyed the kind of non-linear narrative. It really threw me for a loop because I'm thinking, what's happening here? And the amount of power that it gives the female characters. So that was like kind of my first impression of it. But then I had to see it again. And well, I came up with some revelations. But yeah, it's a different film. And it's something that really grows on you. And I feel like you have to watch it more than one time. That was my impression. 
Yeah, for me, it's a film. I'm. It's interesting. I'm having this. I'm having my own personal revelation about like the sequence of films that we have been talking about together, and I've been watching. A lot of these are the films. Um, Cella and the Spades included. These are films I desperately wish I had when I was a teenager. Um, especially growing up as a little black girl in a suburb, not very unlike the rural Midwestern town in Knives and Skin, around a very racially diverse group of people, of course, but still feeling very much like an outsider because you are around an overwhelmingly white space, you're around an overwhelmingly white uh, institution, um, overwhelmingly white education system and socialization and all those things that really are I would say, in a way, designed to make a person of color feel there's a subconscious level of inadequacy that you have. And this film as a whole, uh, with its racial representation and how it uh, approaches its characters of color and the way they are written and the way and the kind of and the kind of room they have to really kind of grow. I, I believe Jennifer Reeder really wanted to make sure that each character got a specific kind of arc, especially the women, of course, this is, I think she has described this film itself as feminist. Like, I think she wanted to give this uh, film an opportunity to really show women um, finding themselves in a way um, and finding their own agency and kind of figuring out what their life is and what they want it to be moving forward. I feel like a lot of that would have been just so, it would have been nice. You know what I mean? Like, of course, like I'm grateful to be the age I am now um, and to not be uh, a Gen Zer, honestly, that was shade. Uh, so I am like happy, I'm happy for my experience, but something like really, yeah, this kind of Twin Peaks, like, you know, really oddball of a film would have been totally, it would have been me fitting my square peg into a square hole kind of a deal if I was a teenager watching this. But um, just real quick, like my first experience with this movie, oh, first thing I knew it, it was at Tri Tribeca earlier that year. And I believe um, Matt Barone, shout out to him. Hopefully I'm, um, I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. So forgive me if I'm not. So he, I think, I don't know if he personally sent it to me, but I know Phil Nibiel Jr. I think he sent me the image of Charlotte, um, who was played by Arian Roach in the movie, sent me the image of it. And um, I was like, and, you know, it was the one where she's looking in the bathroom mirror and she's got blood all over her face. I'm just like, what is this? Because um, it looked kind of neat because she's got like this, um, the way her makeup looks and everything like that. And I'm just like, I was really kind of taken aback. And I'm like reading, I'm reading, okay, I see the title and I'm reading the synopsis and I still don't know what in the world this is. So all I knew is I was going to Overlook Film Festival, which was in New Orleans last year. And I was like, okay, I need to see this movie. I need to make sure, um, despite all of my um, obligations, because um, we, we were promoting horror noir there, there was a screening. And, but I, knew, I was like, no, I need to fit this into my schedule. So I did fit it into my schedule. And this was just that day. I mean, just that year, and even still this year, but definitely last year, I was going, and you know personally what I was going through. I remember... I just, it just wasn't a good day for me, interestingly enough. Like, it was an okay day, but I wasn't, like, a happy day. Or particularly, like, better. I wasn't having one of the better days in the midst of, like, the, the grief I was experiencing. While I was watching it, I was really, I was, I was following the film, but it was really difficult to really grasp what was going on. And we'll get into this more in details um, later, I'm sure. Because, like, there was a part of me watching the film where I didn't want to believe that Carolyn was dead. There was something inside of me until until the movie confirms it. Like, I'm just like, no, because of course, because it's the first scene and you kind of get this idea. OK, oh, this is kind of a magical realism kind of a 
kind of a story we're going to be following. So when we're kind of seeing these um, particular scenes with Carolyn and her body is in a specific point of decay or whatever, or we're seeing her body move and things like that. I, I'm thinking she's still alive. Like there's something in my brain that didn't want to accept the fact that she's dead and that her mother, who was clearly in a pit of in, like just a vat of grief and just whatever neurosis she's dealing with. Um, I didn't want to see her mother like go through the pain of actually like losing her child. I think there was a point in the film where I just literally started and I think, well, I guess we'll get to it, but I literally started sobbing in the theater. Like I couldn't, I could not deal with, I think for me, this film, and I think, and I gotta be honest with you, I don't think a lot of people understand if you haven't gone through this kind of level of grief, if you haven't lost like a loved one, I'm not talking, I'm talking like a loved one, like someone you are super close to. I don't know. I don't want to assume, but like the visceral understanding of how, ugly grief can feel and how ugly it can be and how uncomfortable it makes a lot of people feel if you are unapologetic about kind of shedding your emotions because you can't because there's nothing because you got to get it out the first thing I was taught was if you don't get it out it's going to fester and it's going it's going to it's going to get worse so whatever you're feeling feel it don't don't give a good goddamn about anyone else you do what you need to do to get better because you can't run away from it and there's a point in the movie where Carolyn's mom just, she just does not care. She just lets it, she just like, and actually several instances, but one particular one, she just lets it go. I think when she said I'm useless and she started crying, I was like, I'm, I'm done. Because <laughs> I, I was just exactly. like, that is, I, I started crying. I, it was hard for me to keep it. Like, I'm surprised I didn't like verbally sob in the theater. Like, I was really trying to compose myself as much as I could, but I couldn't. Like, I was just I, like, I tears not everything i just like okay before these lights come up i gotta get out of here because i look crazy but that's but i need but there was a part but there is a part of me that really you know what i mean like i could really relate to that character on that level absolutely because you know as women i think people go to women as the nurturers as the uh, will make everything better it's kind of like a stereotype that we are the caring ones and then as black women there's another layer because we can't show our emotions because it gets us into more trouble than it's worth sometimes especially when we have grief because everybody says oh you're you know you're a strong black woman and that really does a lot of damage to us so to see a film filled with such grief and like, and there's an embarrassment in general about showing grief when you have every right to feel how you feel and to express that feeling however you need to, as long as you're not like jumping off a bridge because, you know, that's just, yeah. I mean, that's expressing your authentic feeling, but that's also harmful to yourself. But yeah, I just think that this film approaches grief in such a unique way that it will catch you off guard. It absolutely will catch you off guard. Yeah. So what are some of the other kind of like, what were what were some of your points that you wanted to bring up with me? Like, what are the general, what are the general strengths I think you, I guess you would find in this film for you? Ooh, okay. Doozy doozy. Because I grew up in the 80s. And as a teenager, I didn't really see myself represented. So I was in the theaters kind of gobbling up anything that showed any kind of teenage angst that I was experiencing. So, of course, where was I in the theater? I, I was seeing John Hughes films. And 
he made a huge mark in teen films and 80s films and making teen angst um, something that you could like actually specifically 80s teens teen angst he made that a thing and he for whatever reason he could kind of uh, tap into what we were experiencing uh but it was kind of hard as well because i never saw myself in these films i never saw like a black girl triumphing i never saw charlotte you know or like a laurel and colleen it was always male oriented it was um problematic um i think there's a molly ringwald article in the new yorker and she talks about basically revisiting um the breakfast club with her child her daughter and then just cringing and then recalling all these instances where she didn't really feel protected. So uh, it's a problematic uh, catalog of films like Pretty in Pink, um, even some kind of wonderful. I think he did that one. Uh, I could be wrong, but um, Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, where, you know, there's these like white girls and they're not, they're not like, I think in Pretty in Pink, she was, her family was pretty well off. Uh, sorry, in um, 16 Candles, her family was well off. In Pretty in Pink, this I think that film is the one that kind of blew my mind. That and I could see parallels here. And I feel like uh, Jennifer Reeder kind of made a feminist version of a John Hughes film, but it's its own unique entity. You know, she kind of made the film I needed when I was that age, and I was looking for representation and looking for answers as a as a teenage black girl. You know. So that was my huge revelation because even there are, are scenes like the dress that the girls are preparing. It's a oh, pink yeah. lace dress, right? And Molly Ringwald's character, um, she revamps this pink dress. Her father was unemployed and pretty in pink. And so is Dan, right? Uh, Joanne's father. Mm-hmm. Um, even the ending with the glowing glasses, I could swear... Um, this isn't a John Hughes film, but it's one of my favorite films. Uh, Repo Man. I think that at the end, they go <laughs> off in a car that starts glowing green. So it just kind of, I made all these connections and I'm like, oh my God, she made the film I needed when I was you know, a teenager. So I think that's why I agree with you um, in that this film was something that we needed when we were younger, you know? And I'm so glad she made it because I feel like the young people now they're living such a different life, you know, there's more acceptance with some things and then there there's uh, more um, separation. So for her to make this film to kind of put everything together, it just, it just makes me really happy. So that was my huge revelation because, you know, John Hughes also used a lot of racial stereotypes. Women weren't, I mean, women were kind of disposable unless they were the main characters um, it's it just a lot of problems. So I'm sorry if I'm like, uh, sorry, not sorry if I'm, I'm killing people's uh, memories. But I mean, when you look at it now, eh, <laughs> not so great. you know. Yeah, there's a lot of things I want to respond with your statements. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think what what I think what we realize now, and I think, you know, generations past did it before as well, too, is this idea that we're watching these um, movies and TV shows and we love them as kids. And I think just as we get older, we've lived life. We we, we can articulate our feelings um, a little bit, our feelings and our statements and our intellect a little bit clearer. 
about the pop culture that we liked and consumed as younger people, it doesn't mean that we love it any less. It's just that we are now in a space where we can see, um, yeah, that was a little problematic. And, and in the context of the times today, that probably wouldn't be acceptable. I, I, I'm just throwing out this example because it's always the first one that comes to mind is Martin, for example. There's a lot of issues with homophobia uh, and colorism and slight buffoonery with Martin. Now, it is still funny as hell, but there's, a, again, also misogyny, not misogyny necessarily. I would probably say sexism, perhaps. Uh, but definitely colorism is probably the most glare, glaring that I see in Martin. Like, again, it's still, it was a funny show back then. We used to laugh about it. But like as an adult, it's just like, yikes. Like there's a lot of like not so great things happening with Martin. But I think also when we're talking about Knives and Skin, Interestingly enough, I met I was I was lucky enough to meet Jennifer Reeder at Fantastic Fest last year. And of course, I was geeking out because I just was just telling her how much I loved her movie. And also, and I think we'll get into this a little bit more later, perhaps, but or we can get into it now, doesn't matter. You know, what made my jaw drop is <sighs> I'm about to go there. Uh you have two dark skinned black people falling in love with each other. And you also have a queer black female uh couple as well. Like, that is damn near revolutionary. You don't see that. You don't see that a lot. And I, but I, when I say revolutionary, I'm meaning this mystical, this Midwestern teen Gothic noir film. When have you ever in that particular genre where it mixes horror, thriller, uh, musical, uh, with other magical realism, like, uh, like, you know, all of these different genres. And it, it's like a Donnie Darko kind of a jam of an atmosphere of a tone of a film, and they've got two black people. Let's let I'm just like no two cup two particular couples, a black female queer couple, and then a straight dark skin black <laughs> couple. Like you never have ever seen that, and I was just like, dude, I just thank you because because I'm just like I don't know what else to say. I'm just like that was just so. It felt so good to see that because I just don't, I just, I, I love seeing black people in love and I just, or, or in like, I just, cause you don't, you don't see very often, man. It's usually, sometimes it's usually they'll have the dark skinned man and the light skinned woman. Cause we've got a lot, we got a lot of issues with colorism and anti-blackness and white supremacy. And when you can just have a film that is not directly focused on those things, but it's just, it's, it's a teen, it's a teen driven movie. And it kind of just shows teenagers trying to figure out things. And they're still like generally like Jason, like really likes Charlotte and Charlotte really like, like, and he, and the, and the fact of the matter is, and we can get into like the idea of social status too, but like, he he generally was very he liked her like he I I don't care if you're the the goth girl I don't care if you're not a teenager even though the whole um pre preconceived uh conception is like the football player dates the cheerleader and like the, of course those conventions have been played with in film before but like not with but it's just it's just nice to it was just nice to see that like I I don't know how to say it without just like continuing to like ramble and gush but when I was talking to when I was kind of like telling reader not I didn't go into all this detail but I'm just like thank you for the I, I just I love the inclusion of this um just just reading some articles I know that uh she grew up she grew up in Ohio and she was kind of just talking about like I yeah I grew up in the Midwest and she lives in Chicago she lives in Sh the Chicago area now and it's just kind of just like I've been around you know racially and ethnically and culturally diverse spaces my entire life and I wanted to kind of demystify this idea of the midwest just being very very white because that's just not true 
also, she told me she was really in- intentional about the way she portrayed black men and black boys. Yes. Um, she didn't want them. She was really, she was actively trying to get away from stereotypes. Like, um, even with the sheriff, with Jesse, with, you know, um, Jason, she, she like, and, and, it, and it definitely shows. Well, it's funny you say, because one of my notes is that all the redeemable men in this film, they're black. <laughs> they only speak the truth, right? Like they don't, they don't try to um, hide anything. Like um, for instance, Jason likes Charlotte and he's not hiding it, you know? And um, right. like the only thing I would say is like the sheriff was kind of like dubious about his, his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, say what? But anyway, you know, like I just, I feel like the, um, the boys, um, even Laurel's brother, I think is his name, Jesse. He's, yeah. He's a truth teller. He's sitting there, you know, in the scene when they're sitting at, in the auditorium and Joanna's talking about when she had her period, I think. She says something, he goes, you know, you actually, you can be very mean, you know? And like, he just tells her straight up. And there's another scene with uh, his stepmother, which is hysterical, which I think we'll talk about later. I don't want to drop that one just yet. But he's just a truth teller. And that's what what really struck me is that the young black men are really noble and that's really rare to find that they're not struggling i think that it's, it's true what you're saying is that this narrative of a met midwestern diverse town where people aren't like you know selling drugs on the street corner or being stereotypical it's just they're just living their lives you know and that's hugely important do you think um renee is jesse's stepmother i that's what i thought or is she there? So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. So from I, so I read an interview. I think it was done with, it was either done with Jennifer Reeder, Kate Arrington, who played Renee, and Kayla Car- Carter, who played Laurel. I think right from, from when Kayla was kind of talking to the interviewer, like, I think she was saying, yeah, yeah, I'm biracial. Like, like my character is supposed to be bi- biracial. Okay. And she looks, she looks to be older. I'm going to assume that is kind of a thing we kind of look at, right? Because when we look, when we're looking at biracial people in film, they usually have a, they have a specific look that makes you look at them like, oh, I, I, it would make, I, it seems like they're, they could be a variation of biracial. Jesse, we could argue does not look biracial, but my, yeah. consi- my, my consideration was always was Renee was his biological mom as okay. well. I don't know where I got this idea. I have to look through my notes. I have a different set of notes, but I just, I don't know if something gave it away that she was their stepmother, but I think also because I was getting into the whole fairy tale thing and she behaved like an evil stepmother. So maybe that's why I said stepmother because <laughs> she is behaving like the evil stepmother, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. But she- I was also going to say, yeah, she is a piece of work. My goodness. But, um, but also, I wanted to mention in the deleted scenes, because you talked about the sheriff being a little dubious. Interestingly enough, in one of the deleted scenes, he asked her straight up. He was like, are you banging the swim instructor? Like, he's trying, like, he knows something's up. And he asks her directly. And she, of course, she, she denies it. But, like, again, it was a deleted scene that we didn't see in the movie. But he is very suspicious. And he, and honestly, in the movie, he does look kind of fed up with mm-hmm. her. Like, he really does. <laughs> Oh my God, that woman. But uh, yeah, but again, in seeing this couple, and it's weird because as you were talking about um, uh, Jason and Charlotte, I was thinking, you know what? 
she totally flipped this um, teen movie on its head by putting those two really dark-skinned kids in the leading role, in the Molly Ringwald role, and, you know, like the um, Eric Stoltz role. Like, they, they, it's, it's so brilliant, it blows my mind, because I don't even know if people realize just seeing that and also the the uh, Laurel and Colleen being a couple like that's you know for a, 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 a young gay person or queer person living in the middle of nowhere to see this film I, I don't know I just it's it's really it's game-changing absolutely um what else did I want to say? I, I, there's so, there's so much to say about this movie, but I guess the first, uh, if I were to go back, I guess the first thing I would think of, cause the first thing, the first two people we see are Carolyn and Andy. Again, that's why I picked up on the magical realism idea really quickly because she, she kind of brands him with her, with her initial. And yeah. again, I think that's the other thing when I hear critiques of this film. Um, I love weird stuff. Like it depends. I guess it depends on your level of weird or your mood when you're watching this movie. But I all, but I always take into consideration, and what I always preface with this film, if somebody is new to it or is just about to watch it or being introduced to it, is the idea that, like, no, really, you guys, this movie is hovering just above reality. So it doesn't. It's not a movie that takes place in our actual existence. There's a real, real element to the mo- to the overall um, film, but the movie doesn't take place. You know what I mean? Here, like it's not. It is. It's a movie, and like it's almost in a different dimension. I don't know if that's the right term, but um, no, it's absolutely true. Yeah. So you're kind of hinted at that at the at the at at the beginning. Um, because again, also because I, I say that specifically when you're looking, when you're th- considering the dialogue of this film, like you had mentioned Jesse kind of like being really real. And that was one of the notes I had written very early on. in one of my outlines um, for a write-up for this film is the idea that like almost all of the dialogue is very truthful and very like sober. Like everyone is saying what's on their mind without, without it seeming unnatural or socially unacceptable. And that's what I kind of like about it. And, and it does seem kind of, yeah, it seems a little off, but at the same time, I think, everyone's delivery of the lines because again reader was extremely adamant about like everyone needs to stick stick to the script so there was absolutely no improvisation um so every line that you hear are the words that reader has has written and from her standpoint as a director like she was asking for these very kind of some sometimes deadpan uh delivery of these lines like it's strained in a way that kind of that's the right word that kind of works for the film. So when you're kind of seeing Andy and Carolyn interact, that was kind of like the first, that was the first opening to this. To, to, to For me, when I'm watching this, I'm like, oh, this is really going to be something different. Because again, I went to this movie completely blind. I didn't know exactly what I was going to be watching or what I was in store for. Even the missing girl element, I didn't really know what it was. But I do really appreciate the fact that like she, Jennifer gets get, gives it to us straight at the beginning. Like, you know what happens to Carolyn, but no one else does. You're you're kind of like so the movie you're gonna you're just watching everyone else kind of deal with her disappearance even though you kind of know what's going on or like again that's why that's why I was watching it where I was just like is she really dead I mean what's going what's really happening here but I think but also their interaction is also a setup for another theme of the film which is kind of not necessarily feminism but the kind of toxic situations or toxic interactions we do sometimes have with you know with men with men and women and boys and girls yeah Absolutely. And it's funny, going back to the branding, um, I immediately thought of that um, 
that book or the story, The Scarlet Letter, because she was branding her boyfriend. Now, I see they don't give us any information whether they know uh, or if Carolyn knew that Andy was kind of a man whore, so to speak. <laughs> we don't know that. But in her putting her brand on him, it's kind of like she's claiming him for herself. Also, like the Scarlet Letter, they they put an A on a woman because she has a, a baby out of wedlock and she doesn't know who the father is, right? So they just name her as the adulteress because, you know, oh, she's, she's whoring around. She's got, you know, all these um, male suitors. But I like how it's flipped. Carolyn's branding a boy. And he does turn out uh, to be pretty promiscuous. And he, he gets a reckoning for that, you know? Yeah, and the fact that the wound uh, doesn't heal, that it keeps bleeding, like at certain points. No, and nobody questions him. Nobody questions him about that. I was like, well, you not see that? <laughs> the only person that questioned him was his grandmother at the beginning. He go- She goes, what happened to your face? And then he lies about it. Again, he makes this, he, he comes up with this typical, I, I, forgive me for saying typical, but kind of the typical, like, teenage boy response like you should see the other guy like it's like you know oh i got into a fight and i won and this is just my battle scars so that's kind of like my kind of reading between the lines yeah let's just stay on carolyn let's try to do one let's let's just see where this conversation takes us because there's so much i i love i love the uh the symbolism that you pointed out with the the scarlet letter because i i guess for me when i was watching it i was seeing again i I think it's the same i think it's i think i think it's the same thing i think it's carolyn's presence is everywhere she's not in she's not only on the minds and the consciousness of the people that knew her in you know in the school at home or whatever but like she's also there there are physical reminders of her and i think that c on his on his head on the side of his head is definitely one it's the it's the, you know and it keeps and the fact that it keeps bleeding there was still life in her i guess there's an argument or a case to make for a, a spiritual a spiritual essay on this particular film as well for talking about the essence of carolyn because we don't really get to know who she is and and i question that because like even though we get to see her room like we really get some a lot of intimate time time with her room we get to see the details of her room um the sequence dresses that she has in her um, her closet, uh, her closet is highlighted again. I, this is, and we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the lighting because how can we not? But like, even her room is like is smothered in like that pink light as well. But her room also has a lot of like trinkets. Um, it has one of those ballerina box opening thingies that I'm not. I'm not a girly girl, so I don't know exactly what that is. Uh, I think her wisdom teeth too, and I feel like there's a there's a there's um some symbolism with with that. I don't know if you you're probably better at that than me, but like all these little things that like it's a it's very much a quote unquote girl's room. It's a but I question I I don't know. There's something about Carolyn that makes me go. I don't know if that room could be described as who she is. Like I don't I, something I'm there's something about her character that doesn't. I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm kind of going with the idea of like, because the the very first scene is what we see her mother. We see her. We see her eyes, mm-hmm. and her eyes are very sullen. She looked like she she looked like she had been crying. She doesn't like. We immediately get an idea that something's. I'm going to say it. Something's not quite right about her mother. Um, yes. I don't know if you can yeah. want to. It's funny because when you're saying that and like you, the first thing you see are her eyes, it's almost as if Carolyn's room was her mother's idea and her mother's shrine to her daughter and what her mother wanted Carolyn to be. So Carolyn is not this person that her mother wants. 
she wants like the 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 good girl with the trinkets and all the toys and everything but it's almost as if when you see the teeth you see like she's actually flesh and bone she's not mm-hmm. an idea and when she's talking to the sheriff and she's like well no you know carolyn's not allowed to date until she's what would she say like 16 or i don't know 18 yeah i think date. so she has all these rules she has like this prescription for carolyn and carolyn's not that at all She's not that. There are rumors that she was mean. There are rumors that she was promiscuous. Uh, Carolyn basically is living her life and not following the prescription her mother gave for her. And this this whole little shrine, she's not into it. And it's interesting because you never see a flashback of Carolyn in that room or a flashback of her at all. Because, I don't know, I just feel like that's not who she was. And I think that's like a really important point like that's not who she was and we'll never know who she was the only way she we know of her is through other people's experiences of her and she's this real mystery exactly and because when we see we see what happens with her and andy so they were they were kind of hooking up and again he was cheating on uh laurel which i don't think laurel as we as we realize later on i laurel could care less again i've never been a teenage boy but he just was, he wasn't interested in girls for anything other than sex uh, on physical intimacy or sex or whatever. Like that's like his driving force behind wanting any interaction with a girl. And again, it goes back to that honesty because when they're, when Laurel and him are in the backseat of his car, he's just kissing on her aggressively. And she is just waiting. For, she's literally just sitting there waiting for it to be over. And they have this quick exchange. And it's almost funny. Like every, I sticker every time I hear when she says, I don't like when you do, when Laurel says, I don't like when you do that. He says, do what? She's like, touch me. And I just <laughs> snicker because like, that's not something you would necessarily hear a girlfriend say to her boyfriend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, not, t- not typically. And also the, uh, again, we're going back to that whole idea of the honest dialogue. The honesty of that is like, it's really funny because in our society where we are conditioned, women specifically we're talking about here, we're especially when we're young, because we really don't know who we are when we're, when we're younger and we're still trying to figure it out. And our, in our, in our social situation, um, in the reality, in our reality, that's like you're still conditioned to kind of be polite. Like you're trying to, like, don't say something to us, upset him. You know, that that's kind of how it feels. Um, that I think we're, we're kind of socially conditioned to kind of approach um, our relationships with the opposite sex, um, even more specifically in that way. And Laurel just pretty much says, I don't like when you touch me. She just says, can we talk? And he was like, I don't want to talk to you. Like he, he he says that to her as if that's crazy. Like, why would I want to talk to you? Like a woman, like a girl, like you're not, that's not what this is, this is supposed to be. And I feel like it's, I don't know if I had a point going back to Carolyn, but I just kind of wanted to make that point. I'm just kind of um, pointing out these kind of like broader social social implications of what Knives and Skin kind of exposes in its own kind of unique and eccentric way. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, because Laurel is like she's being blunt, where, as you were saying, we were we were taught not to be blunt, to speak our minds. Carolyn brands him and she's making him hers. And we... I mean, we've always, as as girls, we like, well, you know, let the boy approach you first. And, you know, he has to like you. And even if you don't like the guy, you kind of like, well, he likes me. So you, you, you always put your own needs in the background. Yeah, it's a very empowering. It's a very female film. It's a very uh, vaginal film as well, <laughs> as we, we see. <laughs> 
I wanted to go back to another point you made before we move forward. You were talking like again the idea about like it's it's echoing the John Hughes eighty films of the past, and I think Jennifer Reeder really wanted to be a film that's kind of timeless, a la It Follows. She kind of wanted to kind of have kind of a setting that's kind of like you know timeless in a way, but of course they have smartphones, so it's not necessarily so they couldn't necessarily do that. Yeah, I think that's that's true because my issue with It Follows was that actually I have a lot of issues with that film, but that film, that timelessness didn't quite work for me. Whereas uh, the way Jennifer Reeder has done that in Knives and Skin totally works um, because she takes these tropes and she creates another world. That's the thing. She is obviously creating another world. It's just like the sur- surreal existence, whereas it follows. Di- I don't know. I, I won't even get onto that, but she, she did this successfully. She did create it. Like even um, for instance, Lynch, Lynch was successful in creating this other world. I think that's one of his strengths. And also the dialogue, you know, when Jennifer Reeder does it and everybody sounds really awkward and very um, kind of deadpan, for some reason, people are very critical about it. But David Lynch has done that forever. So <laughs> sit down. <laughs> I actually liked the deadpan. I loved it because it just seemed like these kids are really seasoned. You know, that's what it said to me. They're like, we've been through it. So what, what else you got, you know? <laughs> yeah it's the particular scene like jennifer talked talked in general about the teenagers she said like everyone was fantastic as far as like the actors and working with them but she said the teenagers sometimes like they wanted to emote more but in this one particular scene i believe that she has discussed and she talked about a uh, joanna and jesse when they're at the homecoming um football game right and he's he's they're talking is she showing him the she sh- he, she's showing him the uh, the a canister full of um, vodka cranberry uh, tampons. Yes, and when he's talking about like um, wanting to exchange it to to try to get uh, a hamburger from the concession stand, and he's talking about and he's talking about um, a used condom. I forget exactly what yeah. <laughs> people are going to think we're nuts, but like watch the movie, you'll get it because I, I don't remember exactly the dialogue. But it's the way he's delivering his the, that, that whole exchange. Yeah, it, it's, it is very kind of unnatural. And very deadpan, and and again, she talked because at first, I think when she was um, working with the actor, he was he was delivering it one way, and Jennifer, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, because I wasn't there. I'm just like going from what she has said um, in interviews. She was kind of telling him, she's like, no, just just do a deadpan, you know, just just do it like really like in that in that unnatural way that we're kind of discussing. And he was he did it, and he nailed it, obviously. But I remember what we were talking about before. before so again, we'll keep moving. The vaginal symbolism. What what else did you see? Like what what did you see that I didn't, or or what or what do we see, or what did we maybe have both have seen? It speaks to the bigger picture of this film being very female and and feminist, yes, but very female. Like you you know you see a drawing of vagina of a vagina. You see the girls like um, for instance when Laurel and Colleen are, are trading trinkets in the bathroom and they take them out of their vaginas and that's their gift to each other. Have you ever heard when people are like, oh, you know, girl's virginity, it's her treasure, you know, it's her treasure. And she's taking that kind of description of a girl's virginity and, and giving it like substance. And these girls are giving it to each other, you know, not to some boy who doesn't realize, 
you know, whole kind of, I mean, and sex can be a very special thing, or it could just be, you know, you want to get your rocks off. So we don't have to elevate it to that level. But also these girls love each other. So it's like, it's very loving in a way, even though it's weird, but it's (laughs) endearing and it's, and it, it shows that they love each other, you know? And I think that's such a unique way of showing it. Also, like just all the mothers and the daughters and the, that whole dynamic, like Joanna with her mother. And I don't know, it just, it's a very female film. I think that's, it's its a giant vagina, but in a good way. Of <laughs> that. Yeah, definitely. Like, that's something, ho- hopefully we'll come full circle and have some more ideas. Because yeah, I, I guess that's the best way to put it right now. Because I, I have not given that a whole lot of critical thought um, and I'm sure something will come to me to it because like, again, another deleted scene was um, after they got the, the text from Carolyn, like they, like Charlotte, Laurel and Joanna meet in a bathroom stall and, and Charlotte is in the bathroom stall first. And right next to her is a, another, another large kind of illustration of a vagina. And they all three come in and then Joanna's like, who did this? And then I think she, I think it was Joanna who said that. And then Laurel says, I did. Like, it's just, I just, again, it's like there, there is kind of these. Um... Yeah, it's almost a matter of fact. It's not like, oh, it's a vagina. Ooh. You know, it's just there. It's a body part. It's an organ. And we've got them. And, you know, mm-hmm. we love them and we cherish them. And, you know, that's it. Instead of it being this big, mysterious thing. I think she takes the mystery out of it in a way. Yeah, because Laurel and Colleen's exchange, you said it was weird. That's funny. Um, Yeah, I I do think it was a very unique way to kind of uh, show affection. And I really do say unique because I I don't know if I have anything else to say about that. I really don't know how to unpack that, especially. Um, We are both uh, heterosexual women. (laughs) Um, True. Like, I'm just speaking mm -hmm. my experience with it, and I loved it. But, yeah, I I mean, I would love to hear... uh, a queer woman or a lesbian or, you know, from someone from the LGBTQ2 plus A um, a community, if, if I would love to hear, you know, their interpretation, because that would be really fascinating as well. But I think we're so hungry for, rep- I don't know, I'm so hungry for representation that anything I get, <laughs> you know, especially when I see a lesbian couple, I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> so just coming from a a heterosexual woman's point of view. Like, I just want to see representation, I think. I just want to see representation, you know, in across the board, so. Yeah, and I think what, again, going back to one of my original points, I think what makes Knives and Skin so special is that you're, you're, we're getting this, uh, we're getting these optics in, a, in this particular multi-genre, multi-hybrid of a genre that we've never gotten before. And, and it's also being done in a very human way as well. These, these characters are very human and very, they, they, they feel real and they are, again, exploring who they are and who they are with other people and also ideas of romance and identity to, in a very different and fresh way. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the mother and daughter relationships too. Um, I will say what got my goat and what I think, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure there was a particular reason that it was on the cutting room floor and I kind of see why, uh, but we, but in the deleted scenes, we do, Charlotte does have a mother and her mother is deaf and her mother is a, looks like a psych- psychologist okay. because she is, um, 
But what, again, you have to, I have, to, I have to put into the context of this movie kind of hovering above reality, right? Because Charlotte is her, is, is her interpreter while she's giving sessions. And I'm like, this is wildly unethical because first of all, one of the, one of her mother's patients is her choir director, which is Carolyn's mother, Lisa. I did no, this is in, in the real world. This would never exist. Wow. So yeah. Right. So, so there's two scenes. There's one with, with Lisa and there's one with uh, Laurel's mom, Renee. So they're both sitting on the um, couch and on Charlotte's mother's um, couch while she's giving, while she's in a therapy session. And let me tell you, if you did not like Renee before, you would really not like her in this, in this, in this therapy session. Like wow. she, again, when we're talking about honest dialogue, again, it's just like Laurel's mother, Renee, she's just like, she basically says you're not a real doctor and then she keeps talking about what, what, how, I mean, what we realize is like she, her fake baby and, but also another key insight in this particular scene is she says she talks about how she gave birth to her, uh, her other children and I believe she had a c-section with both of them but she talked about again going vaginas, right? Because she's because she because she's kind in this particular scene, she's constantly talking about vaginal birth, vaginal birth, I want a vaginal birth. But she also says that the doctors told her that another carrying another child would put her life in danger. Like she, this is not the best idea. And when I when I watched this deleted scene again, I thought it was interesting because when you first see the Darlingtons kind of at the breakfast table, and again Renee is wrapped up in her own business she's not considering her children she's just kind of talking and asking her and requesting for her husband to get her the good glue and you know she's then she mentions you know baby kevin baby skylar and then she does this weird thing which i think is really awkward for anyone who does this she she looks to her husband and says tell it you love it like that's just <laughs> weird to me but he and then he does that. He does the thing. He's like, "You love it." Like he kind of says it under his breath, but he says it loud enough for everyone to hear. And again, that tension probably comes from this context that we get from this deleted scene of the idea of you are kind of selfishly carrying a baby that could endanger your life and the life of the child. And yeah, maybe your husband's not on board with this. Number one, because he's suspicious of an infidelity, and number two this is not the healthiest thing for you to be doing right now is carrying another child. Right. Oh, she's so despicable. This woman (laughs) (laughs) despicable. Like she's terrible. And oh, she's even terrible to her, her lover, you know, uh, Dan, Mm -hmm. she's terrible. Doesn't she call him stupid? I think at one point. (laughs) Oh, I don't remember that. Oh my goodness. Maybe though. Or I think, or I think that, no, I don't think she calls them stupid. I think she says that they're both, shit people that's what she says no you're right no he he says something like stupid but then she says he yeah yeah you're right he totally says something she says something yeah. similar to him <laughs> like that because um you know what's funny speaking of the kits millers right yeah so dan yes. the clown husband i I, I recently heard jennifer talk about this again i think this is an interview and one that i've read where she was kind of implying again that this is kind of a small midwest town so all of these adults more or less probably know each other, even though we don't see them kind of interact enough with each other, or it implies that maybe they went to high school together or something like that. But there was kind of like, we don't, okay, again, I don't think this is canon, 
and this and we're not for sure, but I do think that like maybe Dan and Renee may have been high school sweethearts, like or they may have dated in high school. I don't know. Like that's a possibility that she kind of like puts out into the universe a little bit. So Andy's character, I don't think is I will say this. Yes, he is he's definitely the guy who treats girls like shit, to quote the movie. Like and he, and putting this and putting that on and sequence on the back of his jacket was really funny. I think when I saw it with a crowd, we all kind of snickered and laughed at that. Yeah. But he's also, but again, I think Reader does a really, really great job at humanizing these characters. So he does have a guilty conscience about what happened. And I've seen, I've seen quite a few teen movies in the recent past that do a really great job of showing the nuance of teenagers. We're, we, we were one, cause we were once teenagers. We, we will, exhibit behaviors or make decisions that are completely crazy but like and, and, and impulsive waves is a great great example of course we we mentioned Stella and the spades again like just making these crazy impulsive decisions that could have these incredibly dire consequences and i think those two movies specifically do that really well and knives and skin does it as well so what we see in andy how andy treats carolyn out there out because when i first saw it, i'm like you're gonna just leave the girl out there in the middle of no you know what i mean but I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not excusing the, these behaviors, but what I'm saying is when you're a teenager, I can see those mistakes, I can see those mistakes happening. Like those mistakes happening, it, it doesn't, it's not unrealistic, I'll say, I'll say. And he leaves her out there, but he does have a guilty conscience about it. Like, you know what I mean? And in one deleted scene, Andy, the sheriff, and Carolyn's mom go back to the quarry to kind of, to look for her. So he, so he does actively say, hey, he he probably said, I'm the last person who saw her. This is where I last saw her, you know? And I did, I did, and we do see in the movie, he actually does go back to try to see her there. But then there's a, there's an, ex, there's a, um, an exterior daytime scene where he's with the two other people. And then Dan, Dan comes and the adults are all kind of having an exchange of like, hey, uh, I'm Carolyn's, like, I don't think she says, hey, I'm Carolyn's mom, but they kind of have been in the same town for their entire lives because Dan kind of says, oh, Lisa, I took your sister to the prom. I don't know. I'm just like, what is, and I, again, I'm thinking about what what um, Jennifer Reeder said about Renee and Dan possibly being a high school sweetheart. So I'm just like, well, is Carolyn, is Lisa yeah. Renee's sister? Like, I'm just, I don't know. Again, these are things we don't know, but I, I like to, I, I'm, you know me, I, I, love, I love speculation. So again, these, these adults kind of have this intimate ties to each other whether they know it or not and uh also going back to the idea of the what what the synopsis said was like the failures of adulthood like when when carolyn's mom says she's useless like you know it is like that that i dialogue like why would you ask your daughter what she would want for her funeral like no mother would ever ask their children ask their child that you know what i mean or maybe but maybe in special circumstances you know heaven forbid but I think a lot of the adults are grappling with their shortcomings. And yeah, I mean, look at Joanna's uh, mother, Joanna and Andy's mother. She's having a mental breakdown. Her shirt talks to her, the tiger, (laughs) you know, her father's unemployed and he just, he wants to be a clown. It's like they're reliving their, not like being teenagers, but they're, they're kind of, you know, you, when you're at that point where you're really young and you don't know what to do and you're just trying different things, they're doing that, you know, they're, they're, they're reliving their kind of foolish youth and it's not working because they're not young, they're adults and they're supposed to have their shit together. I mean, as we well know, it's, that's not actually 
it's hard to do <laughs> as adults. It's very difficult to do. But when you have like children and people you're you're responsible for, it's it's a really difficult thing, you know, to act like you have it together. And they're basically they're they're actually telling their own truths as well because they do not have it together. Absolutely. And even specifically talking about Joanna and her mother, I forget her mother's name again. What's her, I don't think they even really say her mother's name in the in the movie all that much, but she is, her, her mother's name is Lynn. Yeah, I mean, there's that one particular scene where her mother goes ape on her father because she clearly, like she, she, she's for sure, she for sure knows about the infidelity now. And she, you know, hit him over the head or something. And the, one of the, the scenes that follow is Joanna giving her mother a bath. Like, so, so she's like literally doing the caretaker role of someone who just is mentally just having a difficult time and trying to like, you know, is not functioning well enough to really take care of herself. And Joanna is taking on that maternal role. And again, that's not a, that's not an uncommon theme that does happen sometimes in a lot of these films. Uh, it's funny because even though Charlotte's mother was kind of deleted from the film, her mother seemed like the most put together adult that would have been in the film. Like her mother just didn't have any of these kind of like glaring shortcomings when it came to, um, you know, being a parent and just being a functioning adult. I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. I don't, maybe that's what, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why she was cut. I don't know. <laughs> But again, I appreciate the fact that the black mom was the one who was holding it down. That's all I'm going to say. Well, yeah. And it seemed like she had um, a very clear identity. She was, a, you said it was a psychiatrist or psychologist? I believe a psychiatrist. Yeah. So she's a psychiatrist. She's hearing impaired, but she has an identity. Whereas these other parents, they don't really seem to, like their identities aren't really kind of nailed down. And so maybe they try to live through their children and, and it's not working. And I mean, especially with Carolyn's mother, she has no more daughter. So, you know, she can't really live through her daughter anymore. They're, they're grieving in their own way. Yeah. And also we, we haven't talked about music yet, uh, but <laughs> going to that, if you think about Carolyn's mom, you're right. There is a little bit of um, arrested development in a way. It's funny because going back to the whole, you know, the younger people kind of taking care of the older adults, like going back to that scene that kind of unraveled me where, you know, she's crying and then Charlotte's the first person to kind of talk. She's just like, you know, uh, you know, Miss Harper, that's not true. She's like, you taught us how to sing. And then again, that weird exchange where, or she like, or she, t or she like looks at them. She's like, you can sing. And they start singing. Girls just want to have fun. Mm -hmm. And again, even, even all of the songs in the choir, they're all songs from the eighties, all songs from when they were younger. Like when Dan was giving Joanna the mixtape, first yeah. of all, it was, it was, it was a cassette. Like do Gen Zers even know what a cassette tape is? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and they had all of the songs on it. It had like whisper to a scream. And I think it had all of the songs that they sang and the movie on on that tape but like yeah she like um charlotte joanna and laurel they all sing girls just want to have fun to her and she it, it was it was like pacifying her like it was like singing to a inconsolable child you know what i mean and try to like and using songs to kind of like lull them into you know a sense of safety or a sense of security or a sense of peace and i think that's what they did with this with um a lot of the music it's it was about it was about these kind of again your point is about these adults kind of going back to a simpler time maybe just like 
we fucked up, but it's, so it's it's better to like kind of cling on to this nostalgia because it makes us feel like we were we were young once, so maybe we could do this over, do it better. I don't know. Well, and it's funny because it's like the 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 girls sing the eighty songs in very slowed down, like lullaby versions, but they also seem like almost like um funereal, like you know they're kind of it's an ode to the life that is gone, and that kind of struck me as well. Also, because I loved all those songs, but I was like, oh, I love all these songs. <laughs> I was having my teenage flashback of um putting the cassette into the into the player and then you know when the good song comes on the radio then you record and then you get really mad when the announcer would start talking <laughs> you know I just oh. Like, oh my god yeah oh I used to do that all the time too but I did that in the 90s I didn't do that in the 80s so you got me beat there um yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the first time I heard those songs, it was interesting because it was the it was the way they were vocally arranged. I was just I was listening to the lyrics. I'm like, wait a minute, why does these sounds sound familiar? And when I, it took me a minute to kind of realize, I'm like, oh, they're kind of remixing these old '80s songs that I used to listen to all the time. I found a really interesting quote that Reader had about the music specifically and what her kind of motivation was behind it. And um, she said, "I wanted all of the songs." when I knew they were going to be rearranged as a kind of lamation where we could really listen to the lyrics, that the lyrics had to have narrative content. It is in a way kind of a Greek chorus. So I had a list of songs, but it wasn't like any old list of 80 songs. I knew it had to be something that in its original form was really infectious and poppy, but in its kind of eulogized form had to have a lot of pathos, a lot of melancholy and a lot of narrative weight. So I thought that was a really interesting quote that she had about the songs that she chose. Oh, and they did exactly that. You know, they did exactly that. It really, it they really had so much weight in the way they were arranged and they were so beautiful. Like, I hope there's, oh my God, I can't believe I'm saying this, but um, my boyfriend got me into vinyl because I have all my vinyl from the 80s, by the way. I have all of them. <laughs> I'm so excited. I Yeah, anyway, I just got a record player. So I wouldn't mind getting that in vinyl just for that, the soundtrack of Knives and Skin in vinyl, just for that nostalgic feel of going to the record store. We had um, well, we had this big record store in Toronto called Sam the Record Man, and that was like an institution, and you would go and buy your cassettes and your records there. So yeah, that would be nice to have a vinyl of the Knives and Skin soundtrack. So I hope that's coming out. In, in color too, because you know the colors in that film. It's it had a limited edition. What? I don't. I missed that a. Eh? I said a. I'm Canadian. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I also I just real quick I just wanted to um also mention the songs that she wanted to have in the movie but couldn't get for whatever reason. So so Madonna's Lucky Star, Don't Change by NXS. And the Smith song, Big Mouth Strikes Again. Like those were uh, a couple of the songs that she that she wanted to get in the film, but she couldn't get she couldn't get the rights to it for for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, just just a little like sidebar fun fact to bit. All those um, songs she couldn't get; those were also my jam. So just like oh, it's like a knife in my teenage heart. Oh no, it's a, it's amazing the the music and the arrangement. So that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I want to go back to the to the classroom scene where we're introduced to Aaron, the substitute teacher for the English class, and he's kind of talking about um, 
what the what their regular English teacher wants them to, to do or to continue to do for like the rest of the semester while she's out on maternity leave. Again, vaginas, maternity. She had a baby. Right. He's talking. So he called Carolyn that girl. The more I watch it, the more I notice. And he's like, you know, she, the, your teacher didn't think it was a good idea to have a test because of what happened to that girl. And there's an awkward pause. And then he mentions, oh, yeah, a girl went, went missing when I, was a, when I was a senior in high school and then her body uh, washed up on the shore during senior picnic or whatever. And then Joanna just makes this face. She was like, what's her name? Like he very flippantly says, I don't remember. And then she makes a face. She's just like, you know, how do you not remember this girl's like, you know, it's about I, there's, I know there's a bigger point that I'm having a difficult time articulating. But, you know, he says, do you know the name of your missing girl? And everyone says, Carolyn, like, how could you yeah. like, how could yeah. you not know? We're, we're, we're grappling with the idea or this broader concept of like remembering who these who these women and girls are, like not treating women and girls as disposable as, oh, they can go missing and it doesn't really matter. And what these students are exhibiting is the fact that, like, no, we it, she does matter. We do care. Like, we know her name. And we're going to, you know, continue to remember who she is and say it until, it, you know, before anyone knew what happened to her, until she is found, until we know what happens. We know who Carolyn is. Even though with the complicated ideas, and, and Jennifer Reeder has said this, she was like, she wanted to make... She wanted she she one of the ideas of this film is about yeah right f- f- female empowerment and the idea of these girls used to be friends and then they kind of separated a little bit and I think that happens I th- even to this day women we we have relationships with other women we have friendships and sometimes we grow out of those friendships when they are no longer yeah. beneficial to us we realize that we get to a point and it may not be a bad thing right it, it, sometimes it is but sometimes it isn't you just you just grow apart and that happens and i think that's what happened with laurel charlotte um carolyn and joanna they just grew apart like they again when you're young you're still trying to figure things out high school can be very clicky a lot of things just kind of change you, like and especially when you're a teenager you're just you're you're tossed you change with the wind you know yeah and i think that's what happened and i think carolyn's disappearance kind of brings the three of them back together and you know even though they aren't friends anymore and joanna kind of makes a point to say that to her grandmother at the beginning she's still there's still a part of she still has a history with her where yeah. that care and that like still resonates yeah absolutely and it's it's funny you say that like his kind of nonchalance about the missing quote-unquote missing girl that girl um just makes me think of like you know all the missing indigenous women and girls um all the the uh, trans women uh, that are being killed, the black trans women, like it just brings that to the forefront and how, um, again, the adults in this film, they're just, they're not thinking, they're not functioning, fully functioning units. Whereas the, 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 the kids in the film are more thoughtful and more well-rounded than the adults, you know, and the disgust on their faces when they look at him. <laughs> You know, like you don't first you don't you you don't know the name of the missing girl which probably plastered all over the school second you don't know the missing girl that washed up on the shore when you were a teenager like and I was expecting him to say oh Laura Palmer <laughs> from Twin Peaks I'm like no it wouldn't be that obvious no it can't be but um you're so right with with that whole point like how aware these teenagers are and how involved they are and how detached the adults are it's 
And you know, it's not it's not far from reality because a lot of parents they don't know what their kids are doing. You know, I mean, they try. No. Uh, unless you're a helicopter mom or whatever, you, you don't really know what your teenage because they're becoming their own people. So like their own individual, they're, they're becoming individuals, right? And I think maybe even there's a fear behind it too, because you see what happens to um, Lisa as she doesn't know where her daughter is. Um, that's got to be terrifying. It's interestingly, interestingly enough, Charlemagne the God, who's a radio personality for people who don't know, he's taught he's talked he's written a book about you know anxiety and how it feels that and how he's grappling with it and how he's dealing with it but it's funny in this pandemic he's talked about the fact that like he's been the most calmer he's ever have been because he's at home with his wife and his children he knows where they are almost all of the time so there's there's that there's that he doesn't want to live like this for the rest of his life of course but he he's like he's being honest with the idea of I know where my daughters are. So I am the most calm I have been when they were at school, when they were at cheerleading practice, like I, I was a little bit on edge. Cause like, you know, and even with, even with my mother, you know, when she was alive, it was just like, yo, I'm not, I know, I know you, I know, I know you're a grown ass woman, but when you, when you're not around, when you travel, just let me know that you're safe. That's all. I just sent a text. I don't care. I just, I just need to know you're okay. So I'm not a parent. So I don't know what that anxiety is like to like that, that kind of terror is something I will never, I, not that I will never, cause I don't know if I'm having children or not, but like, I don't know. I, I, I can't fully grasp that right now. Like I, like even I might have a friend who just had a baby and like, even when I'm holding him when he's a newborn, every little sniffle, every little like movement that he makes, she would like jump and like, look at him. Like what, what's happening? What's like like that, that instinct is so, is so it turned on immediately after she had him. I just, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm an observer. I, I observed that seeing her who's somebody who I've grown up with. We've known each other since we were 13. She is not maternal <laughs> at all. She just, she was never that person. And she just decided to have this, you know, she decided to have her son because I'm in a stable relationship and, you know, we, we, we both are cool with this. And so she had him and, you know, she's not like gushy and lovey dovey like that, but like, she still has that maternal instinct where she really loves her son. And she's like, no, I, she literally, she's like, I, I didn't sleep for the first few months of his life. Cause I had to, I had to be, I had to make sure that he was like sleeping. Okay. On his own. Like I was literally had to, I couldn't sleep unless he was sleeping and a parent's worst nightmare happens to Lisa and she goes on this tailspin. And I think there's a level of cognitive dissonance that I think some of the parents have, especially Renee, um, where just having to deal with even the, the idea of the unthinkable for these parents, they can't handle how Lisa is, is reacting and how she's, how she's feeling because they are afraid, in my opinion, I think they fear that kind of yeah. that completely unraveling like you know what i mean like we already are acknowledging that these parents are incredibly imperfect and deeply flawed the the film makes no bare bones about that but to see carolyn's mother do that on a whole other level i think these adults in this, in this movie what um the ones who are really observant of it like just don't even are just like holy shit i can't go down that road yeah so it's kind of like they don't want to deal because they're not dealing with their own things you know so we didn't even talk about the muslim girl oh my god oh afra afra yeah i love that there was a um a muslim girl in the mix too you know yeah afra is kind of um 
I don't know how you would describe her style. Because I kind of when I was because when I re- when I wrote my review, yeah, I I kind of described Charlotte as I forget. I use the word no wave because I think no wave is kind of a good no wave is kind of in between punk and new wave. I, I believe as kind of like music genres. If I'm on top of kind of my punk rock history that I studied a little bit in college, like I think uh, Afra has kind of the same kind of vibe because it's her and a- her Charlotte and April are kind of like in the same kind of clique, right? And so yeah, Afra seems very kind of um, anti. I'll just use the terms for, I'll just use it within the context of the movie. Like she's the, she's the anti pretty, pretty pink dress, right? Because that's kind of that's the, the, like the first exchange she has with Charlotte and Char- again, Charlotte being honest, I guess she, Charlotte is still very much like a teenager. We're still dealing with kind of like these cliques and like you kind of know people's social status by how they dress in this particular movie. And that's also intentional, obviously. The comparison is with two particular scenes with dealing with Afra, right? So Afra makes a point, like you know, where Charlotte's talking about um, wanting Lynn. Um, she's she's gonna she's she's helping Miss Kitzmiller with an alteration, and Afra goes, you know, making more pretty pink dresses. And then Charlotte goes, one day you might need a pretty pink dress, and when you do, don't ask me to make it. Like she just kind of says it like really matter of factly. Like she's just like it's kind of like Charlotte is like you could tell she's on the brink of being fed up with being. Yeah put in a box it's the same thing where like i'm sorry in between my other the scene that i also want to talk about the scene where um she's altering uh laurel's dress for homecoming and it's and it's pink and she pretty much says she's like and she feels comfortable in that setting even with um joanna there she's like saying she's like you know i love pink because laurel still is under the impression of oh you oh you probably be satisfied with just a black trash bag and she was like no i really love pink and then she pulls up her um her shirt to show her her very pink bra like it's just like you know again it's kind of like grappling with these kind of perceptions of the way you the way you think of people just because of you know the way they might dress or who they hang out with and that's not necessarily true you know also even with the scene at the homecoming game where she where she um waves to jason when he's on the football field and afra swats her hands away and i just thought that was just like so i don't have a word for it right now do you because i'm just like she really did that. I feel like Offer was like the hardcore punk girl, you know? She's kind of like, even though she's dressed in traditional Muslim garb, she's a hardcore punk. And she's like, yeah, you know, like, we're anti-establishment. Don't fall in love with this boy. You know, we're feminists. Like, I feel like she was a real, like, the real militant in the group. So, which is kind of cool in a punk way, you know? Not like, not like in a like in a derogatory way to her religion and her culture, but just as if like, she's just punk. The girl's punk. She's got a bunch of safety pins on her headscarf, you know, (laughs) she's rock and roll and she's a punk. And I I think that's what I liked about her. But yeah, at the same time, it was kind of like, it was a little judgy. It was a little judgy for for Charlotte because Charlotte likes him. And Charlotte basically has a wall up as well because she wants to be this cool alternative girl what was the term that you used because i'm 90 years old and i don't i don't know this term <laughs> with the music i said i said no wave no wave yeah she's this cool no wave girl and she 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 wants to appear like Afra, but she's she's not really she she likes the boy and but then she doesn't want to show that she likes the boy so yeah and it's kind of a really complex um dynamic there yeah i don't think she wants to um 
She definitely, I think for Charlotte, she's she's all of those things, right? She's the girl who likes the football player. She's also the girl who, who likes punk, who sings in the band, who also likes, you know, pretty pink dresses. I think she's all of those things. And again, I think that's what the film was trying to relay. And a character like Afra is the kind of person, again, kind of like the, not, a, not an antagonist proper, but the person who mm-hmm. kind of challenges the multi- that multiplicity and I think again I think that is very a, very a very teenage thing to do I think I think I don't know if we talked about this before on this podcast but and I'm sure we've had these conversations with each other you know being a black kid in a predominantly white school in an incredibly large high school there was a faction of you know black students who were just like this is what it means to be black and if you stray outside of this even a hair then you want to be like them white girls you want to do that blah 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 and we're going to ostracize you that was the energy sometimes that was literally what was said to you yeah. and i think offer is kind of a stand in for that kind of rigidity yes when it comes to like you know um april too i found like april was fairly rigid like she wasn't she she wasn't as fluid I found her offer and, and April to be similar in that way. But anyway, sorry, go on. Right. No, that was the only, that was the point I was going to, that was the only point I was trying to make. And again, I was just saying how that was, again, I think, you know, Reader did a, did a fantastic job of kind of showing the incredibly complex um, authenticity of high school, the high school experience in that way. Well, it's true. And going back to what you're saying, like not being accepted, I was, Oh God, I remember that. Like, and I loved like new wave and I loved punk and I loved skinny puppy, the industrial punk and, and I loved everything. And I loved new edition and I loved, you know, Houdini. I loved all that stuff. And it just seemed like I had to pick a side and it was very frustrating. It was very, because I wasn't accepted by the goth kids. I wasn't accepted by the black kids, you know, actually I had a little motley crew at high school where it was me, the black kid. There was um, a South Asian girl or a girl from at um, I think it was El Salvador, um, a Portuguese girl, Italian guy. Uh, There's a couple of South Asian guys. So we were all just this kind of mishmash of misfits. And I really loved that because we all kind of we were so diverse. And I, I, I love that. And I'm still friends with them now, actually. They're a great bunch. But yeah, it was tough in high school trying to fit in. So yeah, I think she does an amazing job putting pointing that out. Yeah, again, in retrospect, I just I think I if I understand this correctly, I think just from the context of my particular high school experience, I think there was a fear of being stripped of your racial identity because uh, I wasn't raised to be to be rigid or to or to like a specific thing or to only watch black TV shows or to only consume music by black artists. That's not how I was raised. But I think for those particular teenagers, not necessarily that they were either, but again, when you're in an all white space, there's a, I think sometimes, especially again, you're young, you don't know yourself well enough. You're not confident in who you are because you're still trying to learn who you are. You, there's a fear of like, this we could this is a an, an inception of a conversation. I won't go dive in too much to, of it, of course, but 
you're so afraid of losing your blackness, of losing that part of your identity that has historically been so stripped from you in so many different ways. Like we don't even know, we don't know who we are ethnically unless we take a 23andMe test, right? And we don't even know our ethnicity or our tribal groups. We can just, like, we can just, we're just taking it to the country, right? We can't, we don't know who we are down to the deep, deep, deep part of us that the culture that we have we're so afraid of being taken from us or being co-opted from us that I think in an all-white space as a teenager you are you hold on to that hard you are aggressive with it you go extra you go 10 times because you don't want you don't want to let these white folks know that you you like you know what I mean you don't want to get caught in the sunken place essentially if I'm if I'm putting it I'm putting it in 2017 terms yeah. right like you you don't want to be caught out there like that because that because because being black is who you are, it's who you're, it's, it's your experience. And again, as you get older, you realize that that has many different, um, many, there's many different ways of like, you know, no, nothing, basically nothing is going to take away who you are as a black person. Nothing, not, not the music you listen to, not the friends you have, none of that. So with Knives and Skin, again, reiterating the point that Jennifer Reader creates these characters these teenage characters specifically and they are quote unquote not who they appear to be you're that it's really it's we're we're really forced to not judge a book by its cover yeah absolutely so if we so let's starting off with the uh with the concept of color i what i loved about it like so one of the first things that really struck out to struck me was when they are singing uh blue monday and while while they're in the choir room and they're singing it, every like you know a couple of a couple of them are whispering to each other, and again they're whispering things they again for for a very honest film these are things that I don't think that these girls would say out loud, so they're saying it in, in whispers to their friends in, in in the choir while they're singing, and you see and so but you see the subtitles of what they're saying in pink. Mm-hmm. And again, like the whole idea of this film is about radiating feminine energy and, and being feminist. And so these pinks and purples are, em- are an emblem for that kind of femininity. Again, argue that's arguably you could argue you could arguably be critical about that. Yeah. You can you could think it's typical. I'm a little biased, I gotta be honest, because pink and purple are like my favorite colors. Yeah. So <laughs> Same. um I kind of love it, but basically the use of color, even with the subtitles, is because it's like, you know, it's these, that's, what would a whisper, what would a girl, what would a, what would a girl's whisper look like? Or what would it, you know, it would be italics and it would be, it, not italics, yeah, italics and it would be pink, right? So that's how she's kind of playing with color. And you see, like, when they're, when they're in the pool, when, when they're all, the group of them are at the pool and are kind of talking about what happened to Carolyn. You see pink in the background. In the classroom, there's there's pink. There's in some people in some, and rooms there are pink. So there's a lot of pink and purples. Um, in Carolyn's mom's room, you see a lot of greens and um and yellows. Also in Laurel's uh, kitchen, you see there's there's pink back there's pink and purple backdrop there too. And of course in Carolyn's house, you see the pinks and purples as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I I don't know. It just Again, a personal bias. I love seeing those colors. I love the way they were used in the film. Um, I think that they represent the aura of the aura of the atmosphere, the essence. Sometimes they are representative of tension. I like if I'm looking at Lynn's room, looking at Joanna's mother's room. It's it's got those, and maybe that was what she was looking. What that's what she was looking to do, reader, because her room is kind of like green and kind of yellow. And every time that Joanna and her mom are in that room, there's there's, there's tension. 
and there's there's a there's a real deep awkwardness there too like when joanna just wants to be physically close to her mother she rejects her like and a really like and again one of those really awkward moments where you're just like dad you're treating your daughter like this and again we understand that her mother probably has some sort of mental health issue but to see that rejection like how does joanna process this like it like it it kind of does make sense that she would be more drawn to this teacher this teacher on um, the substitute teacher who is she's really repulsed by if you're if you're looking at it because there's a particular scene that i noticed in, in sequential viewings where um he's talking about their next uh, assignment for a poem or something like that and he brushes his hip against her shoulder mm-hmm. and it, it's there and she looks around no one else notices but she notices and she kind of touches her um her shoulder like what the hell was that and it's like she's she's really creeped out by it but she's also like you know her father is, while he's attentive, he's not really present. Mm-hmm. And the affection she wants from her mother, she's not receiving. So, And then also, doesn't she sell her, her mother's underwear? Yeah, which is probably, another, like, like uh, that's probably kind of a rebellious uh, yeah. action, too, of, of for her mother, I believe. So, yeah. And I think that 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 kind of green and yellow, it also kind of indicates sickness too and illness. And, and, you know, because it's kind of not the nicest color, you know, where you see pinks and purples. You're like, oh, it just we're we're programmed to like pinks and and purples. You know, I, I mean, some of us are. I actually generally like I genuinely like pink and purple as well, but it's just like this program because, you know, blue is for boys and pink is for girls. So I, I don't know. I like that the use of color and how she she uses it to not necessarily uh, pre- like or, or dictate a scene or the mood of the scene, but it does tell you what's kind of happening. You're right. It's like an aura. It tells you what's happening and, and, it, and it gives you like kind of an insight of the characters. And and I love I love colorful, colorful movies like I need color for it to keep my attention I don't know if that's the inner artist in me or, uh, but I need some color because if it, if um, a film is really monotone with the, the brightness and like very dim and dark, I've, I have a hard time paying attention to it. But this film, because of the color, you're kind of immersed in it and you kind of want to swim around in it, so to speak. Yeah. So, yeah. I think the color was very effective. Yeah. Yeah, I forget. I know her director of photography was Chris Rahano, so and she, she's worked with him for a really long time. So, it, from what I could tell about the crew members who were helping her with um, scenes, also even the lush green when they're at the quarry at night, like it's so like you could tell that that was like color correction and like they it was the, like the greens and the blues were were highlighted for a reason. Like it's just it does it looks really it has an ethereal look to it that I really love when when, when you see Carolyn and Andy out there. Um, I was like, oh, it's just it's so green, it's so pretty. Like I just it, I I yeah I you know um I don't always use that the p word, but yeah I do really like the use of um color in that way so again i think it's really great um and you do you see this a lot you like you the more you learn about film the more you understand why particular writers and directors work with um crew members over and over and over again because they they know each other well they know each other well they are able to collaborate um smoothly and um 
what's the other word I wanted to say? I, I just, I, I really, you could, there's a, there's definitely a pattern when it comes to certain people. Like she's worked with her editor as well for years um, as well. So, you know, Jennifer Reeder has said she, the movie that you see is the movie that she wanted to make. And I think a lot of, I think what helps that is that you working with the people that, you know, are collaborative that who who work well who, who you work well with and that and I think, it, I think that definitely shines also some of the actors she's worked with before too well and they it's like they have like this shorthand where I used to work with a photographer uh, when I was a makeup artist and he would be like it was the way he would describe things I'd be like got it and like we just had this shorthand like we had almost like this like um kind of like a, a wonder twins connection in our brain where we just worked so well together and he would ask me, he would say, you know, like a color or like he would refer to like, I don't know, a song or something. And I would get it and I would just do the makeup and it just we just worked really well together. So I totally get that. Um, I get that she has a, a shorthand and and I think that's a really rare thing when a director gets the film that they envisioned. So that's a huge point that you brought up that she got what she wanted. Because sometimes it's hard, you know? They're like, well, why don't you make this character do that? Because like, I don't want to. You know? yeah. I don't want the character to do that. But she got to get her film out there the way she saw it. So, Yeah, that seems to be really important. Um, I went on one of my first movie sets um, where I wasn't like an active, active participant um, a few months back. And I was, just, I was so in awe looking at how the AD kind of just ran that set. Like uh, a friend of mine was the director, of course. So she did, so she, you know, um, hired the actors. They did rehearsals and run-throughs together. So she collaborated, she collaborates um, a lot with her actors to make sure that they really understand the script and they, they do all that kind of stuff. But the eight, but once it was time to shoot, the AD was so on point. I was like, just looking at her, just like my brain was just like, like just the wheels were turning. I'm like, who is this girl? Cause she is amazing and I asked my friend afterwards and she was like oh yeah girl I, she worked she worked with she worked with me on my last movie so like we, we and we just found her on Craigslist like and now and now this young woman she works she I, I don't know what she does on the um set of Law and Order SVU but she works on SVU and oh, wow yeah and she's amazing like just watching her was so cool and I could but I could see why my friend wanted to, to continue to work with her like she's just like as long as I can afford her I'm gonna keep calling her to work with me because I can tr I trust her like the same thing with her director of photography like she trusted him like she was like I know him we work together I'm gonna keep hiring him you know and so to make to make the whole shoot as smooth as possible these are the people I know already and I trust and I'm and as long as it's in their schedule we're I'm going to continue to work with them. And I think that's just, I think it's, I, I honestly think it's beautiful. Honestly, I love, like, I think mm -hmm. I, that's the, that's the thing I like to do. Like, um, I think one of my like little like side aspirations to continue to do in the future, like I would just love to be on movie sets and just to see how things work. And then to, and then maybe to learn and even maybe to learn a hands-on skill, I would love to learn a skill while, while being mm -hmm. on a movie set. So that's what I want to do. Like I'm, I'm, I'm such a behind the scenes bitch. Like I can't even, like, I do not, <laughs> I do not like being in front of the camera at all. I do not want to be seen. I just want to be the person behind the scenes, just like doing all the grunt work. Cause I, I love, I enjoy that process. And I think, I think those learning how to do those things are invaluable. And so, and I think, um, 
And just looking at the behind the scenes stuff on behind the scenes stuff on knives and skin, I just love that. I love that reader. Um, she also wanted to make the behind the scenes like she's like she she acknowledges the fact that she's like I'm a woman director. I want to, I want to work. I want other women to be grips. I want to I want to see them working with working behind the scenes with me as well. I think that and I think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. Like, uh, I'm you're I'm so glad that you got to meet her and have a chat with her because she's she's I can't wait to see what she's got next and reader I still if you're listening I want that Carolyn Harper t-shirt I still want that t-shirt like put put that <laughs> put it on the website give me I will buy everything nice again I'll buy the I'll buy the poster and get that framed even though framing is expensive as hell all, the t-shirt I want everything I want where is Carolyn Harper all over my apartment thank you very much put the vinyl out again so I can play yes. my new fan record i want i want some records <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i just love this movie was brilliant yeah yeah it's it's again it's something i'm gonna cherish with me for the rest of my life it it helped it helped me it, it really helped me during a really really difficult moment um i don't have the same reaction to it anymore but it's still a movie i like to revisit because it just i think what it, again it helped me just because because I, I was not uncomfortable with showing my emotions but i couldn't help them like they would just come out like i i, I was in the middle of a sprint store and i broke out into tears and like and luckily and luckily the woman behind who was who i was talking to was was helpful like she was just like she 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 gave me a hug she was just like somebody else was in here dealing with the same issue literally dealing with the same issue that you came in here for and I just, I just want to, I'll do what I can for you. Like, it was just, that was just, that felt so good, but I was still so uncomfortable. Like, why am I having a breakdown in the middle of this friend store? Yeah. But it's because I was dealing with such a heavy issue and I didn't, it was just so hard. And, it, and it's, it's nice that I've had, uh, I've lucky, luckily I've had strangers be really, really nice about mm-hmm. it. But I was really uncomfortable with such an outward showing of emotion in public like i'm not i'm so not used to that and then i and then a few months later i see this movie that's so it's it's so uncomfortable and so raw when it comes to grief like grief is a really the overall emotion of that was just like the film was just like i don't give like you know for people who don't know what it feels like i don't give a fuck about your feelings this is what grief looks like yeah and and for me to uh, for me to understand that from a personal perspective and to see it on screen, I was just like, okay, I'm not losing my mind. And it feels good to kind of get this out. It's so true. And I think that Carolyn's mother is the most, it, it's really authentic in showing your grief. You do things like you, you're a mess. You know, you want to wear, you know, the clothes of your beloved, you know, um, departed relatives mothers fathers sisters you want to like have them close to you because they're not there anymore so and it's really difficult like even like when you have to go through their closets and you're looking at their belongings that are you know the belongings had meaning like when she was going through her room I guess we have to go back to that the belongings had meaning when they were attached to a living soul and and now I mean I still have stuff of my mother's and I mean it has nostalgia for me but because it's no longer attached to a living person it's just like that 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 pain that you carry it it gets it lessens to a degree but you know like as I get older I miss my parents so much because they were lunatics they were fun you know they they were really strict but they were they were fun when they you know when they kind of let their guard down so yeah it's it really is a journey of, of grief 
and then and the ending like which I love that ending by the way because it also made me think of um the ending of the breakfast club when Mm -hmm. when what's his name Judd Nelson he does like the fist in the air well Carolyn puts both her fists in the air and she walks away and I just thought now that's the ending I wanted to see you know (laughs) <laughs> and it just it just made me feel like even though it was sad and you knew that she wasn't going to come back it was just a very triumphant ending so yeah. yes yeah. i think yeah i think the ending also attached to that is we do see kind of an arc with these with these girls like these girls kind of come together mm-hmm. like when andy's calling laurel a bitch like joanna and charlotte they don't have to say anything but as, because Laurel can, st- can speak for herself, right? But they're there in support of her. They're there in solidarity. They're there to like, you know, Charlotte has her um, her hand, her, her hands or her arms folded. Like, you know, I dare you to, you know, do anything else. Like she are, they already kind of injured her when they tripped her in the hallway earlier on. But like now all three of them are kind of standing together, kind of like as a force. They're kind of a force together and solidarity to kind of like stand up against this, these, these kind of abuses, whether they're, whether, whether it's physical or verbal. So I think that's, a, I think that's a, I think that was a good rounded ending too. And then to end on Charlotte's face, that was, I'm um, Charlotte's face, um, Carolyn's face. That's even, um, that was even better. It was kind of like, it was kind of the period at the end of that sentence, but also really quick, not to, not to strike. I know we're trying to flow with the conversation, but another thing, again, another, the, the probably the most awkward scene in the movie is when Carolyn's mom is masturbating in her room. Right. Again, another another deleted scene where she's in the therapist's office, and she and it's, it's really subtle. You could you could almost miss it because I had to rewind it again. I'm like, did she say what I think she said? The reason she did that to just to give context. Again, I what I love about films is that we're able we can is that they don't give they don't spoon feed us. Film is a visual storytelling, so what we're given we have to process and intellectualize and to understand as consumers. But in this particular scene, Lisa says, she's like, the only time I forget the hurt missing Carolyn is when I masturbate. So she's doing like, so it's like, she's doing it to, to get rid of that hurt or to not feel, you know what I mean? So it's not anything creepy or anything like that. Right. Because it's, it is really odd because like the first scene of her, we see her with a knife and she's trying to get into her daughter's room. And we're like, what the fuck is this woman doing? What's her problem? You know, but that's not, but again, we don't know. The thing that we don't know is we don't know full on the relationship that she has with Carolyn. I think you made an excellent point. I think you, hit it on the nail when you said that I think she was trying to keep Carolyn in this kind of a case of girlhood where Carolyn was, that's not who she was and that's not who she was growing up to be. But again, if, if the whole, if that masturbation scene makes anyone uncomfortable, there's a reason behind it. It's not for any kind of incestuous, nefarious reason. It's to try to cope with the pain. Yeah. And also, I mean, people do that in other ways too. Like they drink, they shop, they, they become sex addicts. Um, they do other, you know, other things as well to kind of forget that pain. I mean, she she does, she fools around with Carolyn, with Andy. I don't know to what extent. I don't know if they, did they actually have sex? 
that does that's not implied again it was one of those like again this movie's hovering above reality so yeah. she's smelling she's she's smelling carolyn on him yeah. like again again it's that whole idea for uh, carolyn's essence is everywhere in this film even though she is quote unquote gone she's not she is all the five senses are still present while she's not physically there like every yeah. like her mother can smell her like you know we see, like, we see her, we feel her, like, all of those things are still very much, that she's still, she's still here, she's still around, it's still, I don't know, the, I don't know another way to put it, Yeah, but she, I think I, that's where her, she's there, and it's like, she's not, it's not like it's a sexually attracting, attract, right, it's not an attraction, it's more she wants to take whatever of Carolyn is on Andy, she wants that, and it, I don't, it's not like, I don't think it's a sexual encounter. I think it's an encounter where she wants what's left of Carolyn on him. Yeah, it's primal in that weird way. To go back to motherhood and again, vaginas, because we should just call this movie the movie about vaginas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, the, it's funny. When I was watching my mother, um, she she loved The Handmaid's Tale, right? Like, yeah. the funny, like, I told, I told my friend this because it was funny. Um, like just a sidebar. Like after the first season, there was a, there again. Just thinking about the character that Elizabeth Moss plays, my mom came to me. She was like, "Man, Alfred's a bad bitch." I was just like, "Shut up, mom!" But basically, like I think my mom was um, alive to see the second season as well. But she had she was telling me because um, because that 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 show deals with like you know. M- women giving birth and things like that too and i'm thinking about like how carolyn how lisa was smelling carolyn on andy just the smell thing she was just like like elizabeth moss character her character um alfred or june is the real character's name has a baby um has a newborn and like when she's able to hold her child again like the first thing she does is her head her her um her nose goes to the baby's head Mm -hmm. and my mom told me she was like that is that that is so that's the literally the first thing you like for her from my my mother's experience. I can't speak for everyone, but the my mother the first thing you do as a mom is that you smell your child. When I was holding my niece when she when she was literally a few hours born when she was a few hours born again this is about the five senses like um when when because Nyan Nyan be her mother is not like she's not a big talker at least not around us I think she's still kind of shy around me but we get along really well but when I'm holding Ava. Nyambi was projecting her voice because every because her her mother was in the room, my mother was in the room, like my brother, everything like that, and her voice was like louder than it usually has been. And what I saw, and I literally saw, I was holding my niece, and I literally heard the movements. As soon as she heard her mother's voice, she curled her head towards her mother. Like it was so, it, it, I could feel it. And like this was instinctual. Like she, like and that, and I think that's one of the things. Like uh, like the um a baby, the first thing that 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 they do is that they the first thing they do, they, they can sense, you know, their mothers by smell too, but also by voice because they hear the voice in the womb. So when she heard her mother's voice kind of project, I will never forget her, her little head, her little tiny newborn head turned so strong. When she heard that voice, she was like, wait a minute, I know that person. Wait, what? Like she, like she like almost wanted to get out of my arms. I I just thought that was really fascinating. And (laughs) <laughs> just thinking about yeah, just thinking about like Lee, Carolyn. Like that's why this why um, or Lisa. That's that's why I didn't like. Yeah, you're right. That's why I didn't think it was like creepy or too off. Like because I'm just like, oh, she's her smelling Carolyn is not that. It's that's not an odd thing. Like you know what I mean. And I know yeah. Jennifer Reader. She has she has a few sons herself, so she has gone mm-hmm. through carrying a child 
giving birth and being a mom. So she she probably knows what that's like too. Oh, the, there's so much to talk about this film. I, I know I, we could we could go on and on and on. Yeah, we we've we've talked to death about this, and I'm sure we've we've missed stuff. And I know there's more. Yeah. I think it was cool that the that um, Charlotte's band name was Bride of Blackness. Yes. I thought that was kind of neat. Like I, I have a whole other essay kind of swimming in my subconscious about like kind of unpacking the nature of the film being very black, <laughs> oddly enough, on top of everything else. And I think to your point about missing, missing indigenous women, um, even though this woman is about a missing white girl, it, it's, it has a universal slant to it mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a way, if you know what I mean. Like, I think it's, I feel like it, it, it's a movie that is really indicative of the way we treat missing women in general. Yeah, absolutely. And with the feminist slant on it, you, yeah, Carolyn is remembered, and it's and I think that's I think that's the I think that's why we need more w- women directors who do movies who do stories like this is because it becomes a it becomes a film where we don't forget these women where they're not disposable, no. and we challenge patriarchy and men's ideas of women and girls absolutely more women directors please more women directors of color more black women directors just more women directors you know the end (laughs) yeah absolutely so um yeah there's so much more we can say but let's not talk everyone's ear off especially our own i know (laughs) (laughs) all right well, where can people find you, Ashley? I'm on Twitter at Ashley Takes Note. And I am on Twitter at VFD Pixie. And also a shout out to Brian Christopher and Jennifer Reed. Yes. For, yeah, for um, providing me with a, 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 a screener because um, I actually want to eat the movie now. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So um, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We will be back next time. It's going to be a good one. We already have it planned. I I don't want to give it away, though. I want people to be surprised. We're so excited. All right. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Bye. Bye.